Have you ever looked at something, read something, and it just pulled on you? It just gave you a sense that you wanted to reach out and learn more about it, to take a deeper dive. That's the sense that I had when I saw the profile of Janelle Hardy. Janelle's description of personal myth-making and personal memoirs really jumped out at me. And I just felt like I wanted to have a discussion with her to really get into what that means and how we can apply it to our lives. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoy this fascinating, deep, and super thoughtful conversation I had with Janelle Hardy. Awesome. So we're back on the show with Janelle Hardy. And Janelle, I came across you. I Man, it's been a while since I, I kind of booked you for the show. So I'm like, how did I come across you? But I remember I th- thinking about this personal myth telling and storytelling. And I was like, oh, I'm into this. I have to talk to this person. So thank you for being on. Oh, it's such a pleasure to talk about what I do on your podcast. Love having people talk about what they do. They're personal story. So I'd love to know how you got into this. What's been the motivation for it? <laughs> like the story of my life. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> uh, uh, so I'm the creator and teacher of a transformational memoir writing course called The Art of Personal Mythmaking. And the long story is it, it all just came together after many years of doing a lot of different kinds of things, having different interests and not understanding how they came together. So I studied anthropology and dance, and I'm an artist. So kind of thinking about how do we understand ourselves in the context of culture and the context of movement and being in our bodies has always been an enduring fascination for me. Um, And then I've also always been a writer and a visual artist as well. And in my 20s, I did a bit of choreography and kind of more professional dance um, in the modern dance world, which is known as the weird world, weird dancing. (laughs) (laughs) The weird, what about the weird dancing world? What is that? Well, contemporary and modern dance, usually for folks that have never taken classes or watched much of it, it's it looks strange. <laughs> <laughs> so the easiest description is weird dance. If you've seen weird dancing. Hey, I've seen weird dancing before, but not that. I've seen what you're talking about, but I've seen some weird dancing, man. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's people that dance really weird. That's right. Exactly. But, but what I love about um, dance in general, but also modern dance is the ability to be really creative in ways that aren't necessarily considered attractive or appealing to other people and having having the freedom to explore and generate movement vocabulary and meaning through a sense of exploration rather than pleasing others who might be watching. Mm. Yeah, so which I think is how we should approach all creative work is doing it for ourselves first without having that external eye on us or trying to appear good or attractive or whatever it is. Um, Wow. I like that. I like that. mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so 
I've always been very creative. I've always roamed around within writing, painting, and dance. Then I've also had this enduring fascination with culture. I'm from the far north of Canada, from the Yukon Territory, which is beside Alaska for context. Wow. It's a, yeah. <laughs> What's that like? I mean... Oh, gosh, it's so beautiful. I'm not living there right now, but I miss it a lot. Uh -huh. It's... it's um, there are only 35,000 people in the entire territory, and it is a lot of wild space. Wow. Yeah, and in the winter, it's cold and dark, and in the summer, you get the midnight sun, and it never gets dark. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, But what happens in kind of remote, more isolated communities, even with the internet and ability to tap into so much culture, is that what I've noticed living in a, a number of different places is communities that are much more isolated tend to generate a lot more of their entertainment um, in sports and recreation, but also arts and culture. And so I got to grow up in this kind of rugged sort of DIY ethos of we make our own fun, we make our own culture. Um, we just do it if the experts aren't around and we invite yeah. We invite amazing people up to the Performing Arts Center for all sorts of things and and learn from them. So I really, I really appreciate having grown up in a culture like that. And and then I spent some time as an exchange student in Japan and Russia. So I indulged my curiosity about how we function culturally and how differently life feels and looks depending on our cultural norms and language. And then the other part of the, these threads that I eventually I will tie it back into this <laughs> transformational memoir writing that I do um, is healing and body-based healing. So I, uh, I became a single mother when I was the day after I turned 24. I was going to school. Life felt very stressful and someone suggested that I get a massage. And I hadn't really had any body work before. And I found this woman who was offering really affordable sessions because she was actually training to be a rolfer, a structural integration mm -hmm. practitioner. And so I was getting massages from her. And then as she was progressing through her trainings, she said, hey, do you want to do the rolfing series, which is a series of 10 sessions designed about um, releasing restrictions in the connective tissue called your fascia and uh, fixing your posture is a very simple way of explaining it, but it's incredibly transformative work. And so I stumbled backwards into this transformational process that I'm sure I would not have signed up for. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have been seeking it. I thought I was doing fine um, because I think when we're young, we can handle a lot, even when life is stressful. So I really didn't know that I that I could feel so much better in my body and in myself. But I started going through this Rolfing series because I liked the practitioner who was learning it and, um, and it was affordable and it really transformed my life. So I decided I wanted to become a structural integration practitioner. And I did that. I did the training. Uh, and, and for anyone who's done any sort of training to become a helper, if it's a good training, <laughs> the discovery is it, it involves a lot of self-healing and personal reflection. So the training was really transformational for me as well. And then I started offering these one-on-one -on -one sessions, hands-on, 
taking people through um, this, this transformational series. And throughout all of that, I was also making art, I was writing, I was juggling different little contracts. Um, I was looking at myself and questioning mm -hmm. how I made sense. Um, and I also, the other kind of last little thread of the personal myth-making piece is I've also been really fascinated in mythology, fairy tales, ancient stories that come out of oral history traditions, which we all come out of pre-literate oral history traditions. Um, widespread literacy is still a relatively new phenomenon. And so although we've lost a lot of the transmission of these stories through community storytelling, the stories still exist because they're quite powerful. Um, some fairy tales have been traced back through linguistic studies to be over 6,000 years old. And wow. um, yeah, and so I, I just kind of held this fascination with um, these cultural ancient tales. Um, and about five years ago, completely by accident, I decided to offer some courses in my living room that wasn't by accident, but I wanted to offer an intuitive painting course. <laughs> and just on the spur of the moment, I, I thought I was making my little poster to put on the bulletin boards around the town I was living in. And I was like, ooh, art of personal myth-making. What would that be? Eight weeks of exploring um, life story and ancestry. And it just, it just popped into my head. I put it on the poster. I assumed people would sign up for intuitive painting, which no one did, but... <laughs> Four people signed up for my Art of Personal Myth-Making course. And since that moment about five years ago, uh, it's been this, for me, very exciting process of having all these interests and um, things that I've done in my life that haven't seemed connected all come together into uh, a writing process that's a healing process that brings body-based nervous system regulating prompts in that uses fairy tale and myth to support discovering a narrative arc and common themes and patterns that in our life that we can work with um, all in the container of support because one of the things most people that I say I teach memoir writing to say is oh I really want to do that and then they confess, but it's been five years and they haven't had the, found the right time or they even confess right. it's been 20 years. Yeah, <laughs> and one yeah. of the reasons people put it off is, um, uh, well, could be a fear of not being a good writer, um, but also more often it's a fear that facing the difficult parts of their life story will overwhelm them and they don't know how to work through that. And so they keep putting it off, which is a real shame because when we put something off that we're feeling a soul calling for, we're not, um, we're not really setting it aside and forgetting about it. It's always humming in the background, this pull to do the work of looking at ourselves and, and our healing and reconciling with our life story and reframing it. And so we're always using our vital life energy to suppress that desire <laughs> rather than to just do it right this is great this is like wild to me like in a a really beautiful way i feel like um 
I was taken aback by the phrase, I'm trying to make sense of myself. I don't think I've ever heard it put that way. Somebody describe it. You have a very interesting way of using words with that. I would love to dive deeper into that, like the meaning behind that, trying to make sense of myself and what you were thinking at that time. Oh, uh, for myself, you mean? Yeah. Um, hmm. So we all live in societies that kind of have an overculture. The overculture being all of these perceived values of how to be correctly in the world. I so, see. So one of, I mean, the most obvious one is you're um, heterosexual, you get married, you have one to three children, you have a career that lasts a long time, you hit retirement, you have a pension, that's your life, that's like the normal path. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and that's just like a very minor example. And then depending on the other cultures that we live within, because we all have a multiplicity of identities and um, cultural and ancestral backgrounds and also subcultures that we choose to belong to. And so all of these different layers also have their idea of how you correctly live in the world, right? Um, and so for me, uh, I took on a lot of those lessons. I'm the eldest child of four, so mm -hmm. I've always been slightly burdened with a sense of being too responsible and trying to get it right. Uh, so for me, actually, part of my healing has been trying to, to retract and unravel that layer of messaging. But uh, for myself, I'm highly sensitive and I'm an empath and I'm an introvert. And <clears throat> we live in, uh, I'm saying we, meaning North America, I'm in Canada, yeah. you're in the States. Um, mm -hmm. But there is in this kind of overculture, we live in a, a society that highly values extroverted ways of being and refuses to appreciate and understand someone who's quiet and sensitive. In fact, people who are sensitive and quiet are often um, not liked very much <laughs> <laughs> because they tend to be the ones that say, oh, hey, wait a second, or, you know, like, we're trampling over whatever it is, let's slow down, or what about this, or what about that, you know? And so, although there's a lot more awareness of the values of introversion and um, sensitivity, certainly there wasn't when I was growing up, and I got told a lot that I was too sensitive, or that what I was seeing wasn't true, uh, seeing and sensing wasn't true. Um, and what happens for a lot of sensitive introverts is we learn how to kind of perform the extroverted role and then disappear uh, and kind of shut down the ways in which um, we are in the world that aren't appreciated. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, well, it makes perfect sense. I actually, I think the reason why that struck me so much is I think like when I was in high school, I was constantly trying to make sense of myself. Mm -hmm. and why I didn't fit into a normal high school box mm -hmm. during that time. It was really just more of like a maturity 
or in a sense of like, I didn't want to kind of ride the wave of normal, what is considered normal behavior in high school and cliquish behavior and, you know, subgroup culture and things of that nature. And then, but I feel like I'm always trying to figure out myself all the Mm -hmm. time throughout the, like in each decade, I feel like I'm always trying to make sense of who I've become in this decade. And as I've take on more information and new experiences. Is that part of the personal myth-making? I mean, I, I was just so like entranced by that. When I saw that title, I said, I thought of fairy tales. I thought of mythology. <laughs> I did. And I was like, these are some of my favorite things. I, I wanted to dive deeper into mm-hmm. understanding that. So that's why I wanted to ask that too. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's one other little point related to what I was describing and just want yes, to touch on. Of course. But the problem and the the healing that I had to come to around trying to make sense of myself um, was that in experiencing myself as not really fitting the the roles um, that are easily understood by my culture. So for myself as an example, I became a, a single mother when I was pregnant, I've mostly been a single mother. Although it's a lot more common, it's still not really considered ideal. And people's um, behavior and assumptions reflect that. I've, I've always been um, someone who really enjoys solitude and doing things on my own, um, which really is suited to entrepreneurship and creating a course like I've created and um, but the the problem that I encountered in my own self-inquiry was that I was always explaining myself to people because I was still believing that in some way there might be something wrong with me because I didn't easily fit into the categories that other folks uh, and you know we all do this we have easy assumptions and categories that we use in order to understand people around us. But I was still believing that I didn't make sense based on this kind of overculture assessment of myself. And I really had to learn how to reframe that. Um, And so this is kind of what the the phrase personal myth-making means is that my own self-mythology was saying there's something wrong that you can't be the way that everyone expects you to be in these different roles. Therefore, although you're happy with who you are for the most part, you have to explain to people because you know they won't get it. Uh, So that was my personal myth. And I really had to work to reclaim myself as being whole and complete as I am. And if people don't get me, that's okay. They can stretch themselves, but I don't need to, um, in a sense, apologize for the way that I am in the world by making explanations to try to help them understand me better. I can just be myself and own all of the qualities that in the past didn't make sense and all of the branching out interests that I thought didn't make sense, which actually now in the work that I do, they make so much sense. And when I describe the work that I do, people usually say, oh, wow, I've been searching for that. And I didn't know how to articulate 
all the things I needed to come together for me to um, feel good about working with my life story. But here you are. I mean, that's extremely well said. I mean, it's it makes me think of the projection we have of ourselves, and, and particularly in this day and age, how some people's personal projection is maybe their personal myth like that they have online, maybe what they're projecting to others in social media and things of that nature. Do you think there's a large part, there are some element of that, that maybe there's a lot of personal myth projections to others to try to explain themselves in the world? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, and not not even just in the trying to explain, but the trying to perform a role that you think you are. Mm. You know, so uh, as an example, my daughter loves acting and um, she's 17. She's in her last year of high school. But something that she found challenging in the drama classes and the, the uh, theater kids community was the pressure to be really outrageously extroverted and performative all the time. Oh, okay. Um, and so... That's just a small example, but we can kind of see how if we identify as uh, an athlete, <laughs> yes, there are expectations about what an athlete looks like and sounds like, and we tend to take them on in subtle ways, right? And it also depends on whether we are the person that becomes the archetype or not, the person that starts to represent the ideal, or if we are the person striving towards the ideal. I, you know, it's interesting. I've had this, I mean, kind of conversation with several people, but I don't think on this level about it. Um, it's very fascinating to me. Um, why do we do that? Why are we projecting this? Well, because people want us or see us this way, but what keeps us from changing that myth? Oh, such a good question. I think I can't answer for others, but um, sometimes we get a lot of social rewards. Often we get a lot of social rewards for embodying a certain identity from mm. our community, from our family, and the consequences of changing the myth sometimes uh, and changing the myth involves healing and shifting how we communicate and show up to each other it often involves setting different kinds of boundaries and not everybody likes that especially the people that know and love you <laughs> and right, are accustomed right. to relating to you in a certain way yes yes I, that actually makes me think of like when somebody kind of becomes the person that they actually want to be and they're comfortable with that and how that impacts people who have seen them living that personal myth most of their life and kind of the disruption that can cause, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's sometimes there's kind of what you're mentioning is almost kind of this gain that is like, hey, I mean, I'd rather be myself, but I'm also gaining quite a bit by living this personal myth. So it's, it feels yeah. like, how do I be myself? But it kind of, how do I, to thine own self be true, but also I'm getting a lot of benefit from this, this myth I'm living, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm reminded of uh, something a friend once told me. Um, he'd 
he was very shy and um, partied and drank a lot. And one day decided, this was before I knew him, but he made mm -hmm. a decision. He didn't like who he was when he was drinking. So he stopped cold turkey. Yeah. But then he had an incredibly lonely phase of his life where <clears throat> none of his friends liked him because he was shy all the time. And the um, loosening of inhibitions of alcohol wasn't available to him. And they only really knew him as someone who was willing to drink and have a good time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's the healing journey is not an easy one because it, it can really reveal the cracks in your social connections and it can reveal mm -hmm. the cracks in um, how deep your friendships and relationships go or what the unspoken rules have been that you weren't really aware of until you changed something and then you get all this pushback. So it can be really lonely on the one hand, which actually is a reason why people do things like put off going to counseling or put off their healing yeah. or put off working with their memoir because we have a sense that something big is going to shift and maybe we're not resourced for it. On the other hand, the inner rewards of making those changes and working through that loneliness and uh, reframing our relationship to ourselves and our identity is so tremendous because we get to just be more of ourselves. Welcome to the intermission. Now's a good time to think about that fairy tale or fable that you grew up with and try to understand if that is your personal myth. Is it Goldilocks and the Three Bears? Is it Rapunzel? Or is it maybe even Little Red Riding Hood? There's many fairy tales and stories that have been passed on for generation after generation after generation. Is that your personal myth? Explore that and think about it. How do you, I don't want to say confront, but I mean, how do you approach someone about their personal myth and maybe understanding that on a deeper level? Hmm. I, I think I mostly just share what I do and people decide whether to step forward to work more with their personal myth with me or they wait. Um, I, what I have found is it doesn't matter if you can see what someone's challenges are. Um, if they're not ready to work with it, it, it's not helpful to point it out to them. But if there's a little bit of curiosity, a little bit of readiness, a little bit of a longing that someone expresses. Um, Give an example of that, that maybe that initial spark or curiosity that you may see that may open the door for that. Um, mentioning memoir writing. <laughs> About 80% of people's eyes light up when I say that. It's really quite delightful. What is it about that? Well, the, I don't actually know, except um, I think that 
a lot of people have a desire to do deep inner work. A lot of people have a desire for deeper intimacy and connection with themselves, but it's a ripple effect. The more we are um, grounded in our own selves, the more we're able to have that kind of connection with others. So there's, I think this is part of our, our human nature is to long for connection and self-knowledge. Um, so I don't think that's something I really even have to spark. It's all, it's always there in us, a curiosity and a hunger for growth. Um, and then, you know, what is interesting with the hands-on body work that I used to do, as well as with this um, transformational memoir writing process, I would often have people come in for my freebie neck and shoulder release with the body work or with personal myth making. What I usually offer people is my free outline your memoir workshop, which is two hours. It helps people identify some themes. It uses myth and fairy tale to do that. And people finish the workshop feeling quite enlightened and also having some structure to do more writing on their own. But what's interesting in both of those cases was often it would take, if they did sign up with me immediately, it would take between one to two years of thinking about it, having the intention to work with me, not signing up, and then finally taking the leap. So it's, yeah. you know, it, sometimes we have to let the possibility of transformation cook away for a good long time before we dive in. <laughs> it needs to be some marination here, you know, yes, exactly. let it simmer, right, for a little bit. <laughs> mm -hmm. So are people actually writing like in a document their, their personal memoir when they're working with you? Um, yes and no. So uh, it's equal parts healing work and working towards the goal of getting the first draft of your memoir written, of generating the material. And the where people go with that really actually depends on what their needs are. So sometimes folks sign up liking the creative kind of quirky approach that I have to teaching memoir writing, but not really interested in transformation and healing, but they get a little sideswiped with everything that starts to show up wanting their attention around healing. It seems like they're mutually part of the whole thing. Like, why would you go in for one? You're going to get the other probably. Yeah, exactly. But not everyone, you know, we can be so blind to what yeah. our soul actually wants, right? <laughs> but <laughs> exactly. our soul draws us towards certain kinds of processes because it's like, yes, I'll get you in the door and promise you memoir writing, but then we're going to work on <laughs> the big things. That's so, right. So I sometimes see that, and no one ever regrets that because uh, it's been cooking away, waiting, right? Um, and other people, they've done a lot of inner work uh, already, maybe, uh, and they... They just start generating the memoir and the themes are really clear. But for, for most people, it's a mix of writing that is around introspection and reworking their personal myth. So like bumping projections and ideas about identity around to, to get to the root of what's actually going on, because we can't actually write a truthful memoir <clears throat> about ourselves unless we 
know ourselves and right. that takes that takes some time but it's always really pleasurable to well I'm it's not always pleasurable when they're painful memories but I provide a really supportive process around that it's always very rewarding it's very rewarding for me to be witness to these creative folks that just dive in and transform before my eyes so that was a long answer, and I'm not sure if I totally addressed <laughs> it, but yes, there's a goal to get the first draft of your memoir written, and sometimes people have to take a couple years, circle through the live process a couple times before they get there, and other people get there fairly quickly, and there's no right way to do it. Do you ever, in the course of people working on this, do you look at their personal myths and compare it to... Um, maybe familiar fairy tales or fables that they know about from growing up? Yes, I love this question because the foundation of my work in is my Outline Your Memoir workshop. And in that workshop, I get people to choose a favorite myth or fairy tale. Uh, and then that is actually how they start to identify themes and patterns. So the the fairy tale, to give away a little bit of the workshop, it offers a narrative structure, a narrative arc, and it also offers themes that I would say over 50% of the time, people that choose the story have no idea those themes are so prominent <laughs> in their life until they start working with this very straightforward, supposedly childish story a lot of fairy tales they seem very simple on the surface but there's a reason why they've lasted hundreds and thousands of years right yeah yeah so it's very fun <laughs> i would imagine like if somebody's like you know mine's little red riding hood you know or you know rapunzel or something like that. i don't know i just start thinking about all these um stories and fairy tales and things you know that i remember growing up with and I think when you're growing up with, you don't really think about the themes, like deeper themes of them. You're mm -hmm. just like, this is fun. This is a story. I think about the stories I read my daughter at night at bedtime and fairy tales. And but I don't think about the deeper meaning of them a lot of times when I'm reading them mm -hmm. to her, which I think is, is it's different to look at it this way as an adult and compare and contrast a fairy tale with your personal myth. I think mm -hmm. that's that's the first thing I thought about when I wanted to reach out to you. I thought about fairy tales and and uh, myth-making, and I thought about fairies and all these things, <laughs> and I was like, feels like the movie Legend or something? I don't know. I'm like I'm very fascinated with that whole concept uh, for it. So it sounds like that people are taking this, really, this journey inward to come back to understanding who they are out in the world and, yeah. and accepting who they are, like meeting themselves, actually, the real person. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and it's such a gift. Um, one of the other reasons people have, especially older students, um, for taking my course or wanting to write their memoir is to offer a, a gift of their story to their descendants or their community. Yes. And, you know, I really, I really wish I had that from any one of my grandparents because they, uh, me too. Many, 
yeah, I had, I have one grandma who's still alive. <clears throat> and I had a grandpa who died when I was seven. And the other two, I don't remember them. But I, I don't know much about them because they didn't share much about their lives to their children, my parents. And then same, my parents didn't pass that down. And I just have this deep curiosity. And so actually, what was really cool, I asked my mom if she would take a spot in my course last year. And she's writing her memoir now. It's catalyzed her to write her memoir, which is so cool. But the biggest gift for me was that in having my mom in my class, I was getting to hear stories about her childhood, about her life before children that she just never thought to share otherwise um, that are such a gift to me because it helps me understand myself as the daughter of my mom and my mom coming out of these this context and circumstances of her family and her life and so on and so forth, you know. It realize how much you don't know about your parents. So like, much. <laughs> like I like you're saying that and I'm thinking about my mom and dad and I feel like their life even as a child you have a very different perspective of what your parents mm-hmm. are doing. You don't know kind of the the full shape of the person, but I often wonder about what their life was like before my brother and I. Like, how did they move? What was their? How did they behave? You know, what were their stories? Mm-hmm. And it sounds like this is the perfect way to leave kind of this lineage, this this history, to pass it down. And as some, I mean, you're inspiring me to want to do this to leave for my for my <laughs> daughter. Right. Yeah, seriously, I'm literally like. I love listening to what people say, but it's like, I can't help things start swirling in my mind. And I'm like, I think I want to leave that for my daughter. I want, mm-hmm. I want her to know about the type of human I, I have been throughout the course of my life. But it also makes me think, how do you keep writing that memoir if you're like young when you're doing it, considered a younger person and you're writing this yeah. now? Is it just a constant evolution of that? Okay, so this is a cool question. And I actually have a lot, I would say 50% of my students are between about 27 to 40. Oh my gosh. Yeah, which surprised me. I wasn't expecting that age group. And mostly women, you know, uh, some men do come to my work, but it's mostly women Mm -hmm. that sign up. Um, But the very cool thing about memoir is it's not autobiography. So it's not your life from start to finish in chronological order. Memoir is much more about exploring a certain theme of your life and setting the rest aside for the next memoir. So uh, an American memoirist that I love using as an example, partly because she's an incredible writer, um, but she's also written, I think it's five memoirs now, is Danny Shapiro. Um, Her most recent memoir is called Inheritance, but she's, uh, I'm guessing she's in her mid-50s, I could be wrong, but she started writing quite a while ago, and each one of her memoirs is about her life, but framed around a certain theme. So just as a quick example, the first one I read was called Devotion, and it was about her search with a young son and her husband for... um, her spiritual practice and coming to terms with being raised Orthodox uh, Jewish in New York, Mm -hmm. having pushed that away and wanting to return to 
her Judaism, but needing to understand her relationship to her spirituality and how that was going to look in her own young family. So all of the stories she shared were about watching her father do his devotions, um, growing up a certain way, and then searching in the town that they were in for a community that they could join. Um, Another memoir she wrote was about being in a long-term marriage with her husband and wanting to stay in that marriage. So writing about long-term marriage um, with her husband's permission. I haven't read that one yet, but her latest one called Inheritance is is a, an exploration of identity that was catalyzed by taking a DNA test mm-hmm. and discovering that her father, who she loved so much, the, her love for him really comes through in her books, um, it was not actually her biological father. And trying to uncover the story behind that, why she didn't know a, a sense of not belonging that she'd lived with her whole life that was starting to make sense. And then coming back around to what does being a father mean? What is what what is more important? Is it biology? Is it nurture, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And so you can see how taking a theme that you want to explore is going to guide you in what stories you share and what stories you set aside for later and also have the freedom to write more than one of these stories about your life as you move through different ages and stages. So you don't have to be at the end of your life to write a memoir, which is so beautiful. I think that's, I mean, that's at least what I was thinking is why I asked that question. Cause I think at least growing up for me, the thought about a memoir was something about an end of life type Mm -hmm. of thing. Um, but I, but then I started thinking about, well, what if you were younger and you wanted to do that? How would that evolve? I think the other thing is how, is it always written or could it, could it be an audio version of your memoir? Mm, well, you could do an audio book. <laughs> no, I just, uh, you know, uh, you know, actually there are people that have created podcast series, um, rather than written. I have a student, I have a lot of visual artist students or Mm -hmm. super creative in different realms. So one of my students, she's a professional visual artist and she wants to do a graphic novel memoir, uh, which is really exciting. So I I mean, documentaries, depending if you turn the focus on yourself in your own life, that becomes a memoir. So it's really it's really exciting that you can also bring in the creative and you don't have to be limited to the written word, but you do have to generate material and organize memories and stories. And it helps to write that down (laughs) as you're moving into whatever you're creating. Have you ever had, this might be a really weird question, but uh, sometimes I think about weird stuff. Um, You ever had like, a memory and you weren't sure if it was real part of your maybe that mythology feels like maybe this was me but maybe my memory wasn't maybe it wasn't what it actually was you know yeah so memory is interesting isn't it um i so i've had i have this very strong memory of my mom's father playing the fiddle he was a um 
Gaelic-speaking Scottish settler in the east coast of Canada, and uh, and they're very famous for being fiddlers. <laughs> right. And I have this very strong memory of him playing the fiddle in the living room of the house where my mom grew up, which is also where I grew up in the Yukon. And, but he actually died when my mom was 12. So I never met him. My only, my way of understanding it is that, that it was a visit from spirit um, because my mom never talked about him. No one talked about him playing the fiddle or the clothing that he wore, which later my mom verified was was what he would have been wearing um and there were no no real pictures of him when i was growing up so interesting right that i have a memory that you could also say isn't true um so there's sometimes we we cement something as memory when we've been told about it many many times yeah the writing process can reveal memories that we just haven't tapped into and also the the focus on body that i bring into the creative and healing process helps to dislodge memories um and stories that were also felt inaccessible but um have you heard of the memoir educated by tara westover no i haven't so it's, it's, well, it's amazingly written and the story is quite wild. She was raised, I can't remember where, but she was raised by a survivalist. She never went to school. Um, it's a very, uh, it was a very different kind of childhood that she had. And she's only in her mid thirties now, but somehow she knew she wanted to be educated, even though she wasn't exposed to anyone really, but her siblings and her parents out in in the woods where her, her dad ran a business and um, engaged in kind of survivalist type activities. And she ended up getting into university without ever having gone to school. She's very smart, obviously. And then eventually ended up, I can't remember if it was Harvard, I might be wrong, but now she's a professor and has a PhD. And um, so she's young for having written a memoir it's totally possible because the time frame is actually her childhood into getting herself educated. Mm-hmm. But the, to come back to memory, what is really interesting is she tells some really dramatic stories about very severe injuries that happened to her and some of her siblings and her dad, because they also didn't believe in the hospital. Right. Uh, and in some of the stories, she brings in a couple of her brother's perspectives in footnotes. She, she says, this is what I remember clear as a bell, but this other brother remembers it differently, and here's how he remembers it. And this other brother remembers it differently to both of us. And how do we know what is true? All I can say is this is my memory, and these are their memories, and here you go. Wow, that's pretty cool. I, it's it's just interesting this the whole sense of your life. I think when you're looking at your life, I always say kind of like I've experienced many lifetimes within the same long lifetime. Mm-hmm. And in many ways sounds like what you're saying is there there can be many memoirs within that long lifetime because there are many different kind of almost chapters and series within that timeline. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like we're different people. Yes. Yes. So how fun to be okay with that and willing to explore it. I think it's fantastic. Uh, You may be one of the more interesting people I've ever talked to. Seriously. (laughs) I don't know. I think you have a very, um, I don't, I don't want to do a disservice. I think you have a very kind of ethereal way with words and how Mm -hmm. you present yourself and, and how you think about the self and, and being alive and describing where you grew up. And, um, it's beautiful. It's honestly very beautiful. Um, I aspire to have that level of storytelling to other people. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm very grateful that, um, you decide to come on Janelle. And, um, I definitely want to explore this a little further, maybe, you know, off air and, and discuss at some point. Um, that because I, I feel like personal memoirs and stuff, maybe it's something I've been interested. I just didn't know how to like categorize it mm-hmm. in a sense, you know, like, like for my daughter, like I am doing this kind of video memoir for her. Well, basically like every year she stands in front of like an area and she tells about the things she likes, what she's into. And my plan is like when she's 18 is to give her these series of 18 videos basically. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and for her to watch herself actually grow up on video. And oh, you and know my... what? Uh, that's just the sweetest thing ever. <laughs> I, if I'm thinking, oh, I wish I had that, I would also love for you to be talking about your relationship to your daughter at mm. in that moment and your Ooh. hopes and dreams for her and what it's like raising her at e- each age. Oh my gosh. She just gave me an incredible idea. Yeah, <laughs> to do do it. It. <laughs> like we're growing together. I was like, I want to give her this gift of like knowing, like just, you know, it's hard. Like you look back in yourself and you see this still picture of yourself when you're growing up or maybe some videos here and there. I mean, I'm 42. So I grew up in the time was like, you had some video, it's a lot of pictures, you know, mm-hmm. and, I'm 41. So I know what, <laughs> right. You know, like you got like yeah. the Polaroid pictures and you know, it wasn't like now where like, you can like take every, your life can be documented like to the T basically. Too know? much. Way it's too, too much. much. Yeah. There's, it's a little too much, but I thought like maybe this video is kind of my way of saying, Hey, here is, your life, this is watching you mature over time. Like it's kind of freaky in a weird way, you know, but Mm -hmm. like I have this huge Dropbox file of all these pictures of her. And I just want to give her the entire file when she's 18 and be like, look back at your life. Look at these videos. When you say, how did I grow up? You actually have evidence of it. Mm -hmm. You can look at it and see how your mind evolved over time. But it's a good idea to see what are my thoughts during that time. Yeah, because I think children, I mean, all of us, we want, we want to be told stories about um, the people in our lives, how they related to us, how they perceived us too, you know, like, uh, um, my, my dad died of cancer when he was 53. So he was a young grandpa, because they were very young when they had me, my mom was 18, my dad was 21. and, And then I had my daughter at 24. And so my my daughter got the gift of spending a lot of time with my dad. He was almost like a, her father figure because uh, her dad wasn't really around. But but he passed when my daughter was seven. And something that 
I notice is very special is telling stories to my daughter, not so much about her at that age with my dad, but about all the ways that my dad played with her and how much yeah. he loved her. And so I know it would be such a gift to bring yourself into this project for your daughter as well. That's a great idea. I'm certainly going to do that. It's uh, just aroused. Uh, this conversation has aroused a tremendous amount of emotion and feelings um, about my life and how I want to document it on, you know, and things of that mm -hmm. nature. So um, your appearance on my show is, is a gift. It's truly a gift. Um, oh, well, you, you have a lovely interviewing style. It helps <laughs> to be asked good questions. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm happy, I'm happy you said that. And, uh, I'm also glad that I've been told that a lot, which is hopefully mm -hmm. means I'm doing a decent job yeah. of, of chatting with people. You know, I'm just curious. I'm a curious person. I, I hear when somebody tells me something, it stirs something in me to ask something that maybe is a little bit different than a normal question, maybe, you know, I'm not but sure. But then why is normal the most interesting thing, right? True. Right. I want to know the deeper version of the story. The, I want to know about you. And I think when I literally saw, I think it was your profile, it was on Spot, I guess. I think that's where I saw mm -hmm. it. That's my yeah. memory. And I saw how you presented yourself. And I've told this to many people and people I asked to be a, on my podcast is, it's their presence. It's what they present. Their how they put themselves out there. It stirs in me. It, it pushes me to want to talk to them. And yours did that. And also, as a, as a wonderful shout out, is uh, Kate Meisner, who you referred me to. Oh, did you talk to her? Holy cow! Her episode was mind blowing on my podcast. It was. Oh, I'll have to. You got to listen. Is it already to published? It. Yeah, it's already I, published. She's amazing. I loved interviewing her. Yeah. She's unbelievable. And, you know, you, you sent me your podcast and I'm, I'm listening through the different episodes and, you know, wonderful people. When mm -hmm. I got to Kate's, it pulled on me super hard. And that's what I said. I want her. Mm -hmm. I want you to send me, connect me with her. And when we, our conversation, it was just magical and her discussions on prison reform and, uh, and artistry and poetry in prison. And she read uh, a few poems uh, as part of the, uh, you know, I put it into the podcast. It was just beautiful. It was a beautiful mm -hmm. episode. Your episode reminds me of that already. I'm like, this is very, <laughs> I love artists. I love artistic people. They're so in touch with their being. And that, mm -hmm. I feel like, although I'm not an artist in the typical sense, I feel that about myself, you know? Yeah. I mean, artist sometimes is a limiting label yeah. as well. It's more about being able to tap into this incredible creative flow, which for me is, it's like a, a vital life force. The erotic is part of the creative energy. Mm. And we, we get an opportunity in whatever way it looks in our life to start um, opening up flow and then tapping into it. And, you know, for you, it might be your podcast is, is where your creative flow goes for others. It's cooking or, um, making art art in the way that everyone understands art, right? <laughs> yeah. Then you think people are making like pottery or something, you know, like, are they painting a picture? I'm like, those are beautiful things, but they're not things like I aspire mm -hmm. to be art for me. Like conversation is meditation to me. 
Mm-hmm. It is uh, it is a vibration. Like having a conversation you is with you is 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 a level of vibration, a higher frequency for me. And I get into this kind of medis- meditative state. I'm listening to you talk, and my mind is just bubbling with thoughts and memories and ideas, and and then it comes out in a question, and then I listen more, and you know that's how it works for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm grateful. Grateful for the work you're doing with other people. And um, thank you for spending time with me. I really appreciate it. Uh, It really was my pleasure. I'm not kidding when I say that it's so great to be asked good questions. (laughs) I'm getting a sense that you haven't been asked good questions sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I've been on quite a few podcasts, but Mm -hmm. also it's um, a function of me teaching and guiding a lot. I'm often asking the questions and on my podcast, I'm asking the questions. So to be able to receive your, your attention and just flow with that is, it feels quite delicious. Oh, that's awesome. Well, that's a great word, by the way, delicious. Uh, so <laughs> thank you for your time, Janelle. And uh, I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone.